you got your timeline there, and I only want to just focus on, uh, you see where the pre-trib views occur. The peace treaty starts the seven years. The second coming ends the seven years. Pre-trib happens sometime before. Mid-trib at the midpoint where the Antichrist declares himself God, makes people worship him or they're beheaded, uh, and they have to take the mark. Uh, and if you read through the seal judgments, the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and you, there's a, this is in your, even in more detail in your notes, um, and then the bowl judgments, it is incredible. Half the world is dead. Uh, 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 my goodness, everything in the sea near the end of the Great Tribulation, is, all the life has died in the sea. Uh, a third of the forests in the, in the world have burned. All of these amazing things that are occurring. And so we've been dealing with why in the world this tribulation? Um, it's so horrible. Uh, and so we started uh, looking at the implications of it by asking why won't God just forego the tribulation altogether and end history before it gets so catastrophic? Why not just come back and end it all? And we found that the answer comes in two key concepts. Why will God allow the tribulation? And I think this is in your notes tonight. Key concept number one, God is such a saving God that he'll even use pain and pestilence and terror and suffering and plagues to bring about salvation. You see that incredible, even in the second half, there are many who are blaspheming, but you have the incredible gospel being preached even by an angel to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And there's, you know, myriads who get beheaded because they now have, they now follow Christ and they won't take the mark, this incredible revival going on. So, uh, and that key concept number two really is parallel with that. Notice in your notes, there are some people who will only come to God in response to disaster. And so the purpose of the tribulation, believe it or not, its primary purpose is to give people a last chance. If you didn't receive the, me because of, of my love and my offering, my free offering of the gospel to all, um, then some will come to him because things are so horrible and amazingly enough, they have nowhere else to turn. And yet God will even take that person who finally cries out to him. Um, but the, clearly this still begs the overarching question of why God allows suffering. And last week we started dealing with that issue. Uh, now, from uh, some people might say that they understand why God would allow evil people to suffer. They might think that there's no problem with wicked, rebellious people suffering because, frankly, they deserve it. But that doesn't help us understand why God allows so much suffering among the innocent. Last week, we dealt more with the overall issue of the problem of pain and how the cross is the only resolution. Uh, and if you haven't seen 55, go back and see 55 from last, uh, excuse me, yeah, 55 from last week. But, but tonight, we're going to deal with even the, the stickier issue of um, why does God allow so much suffering among, among the innocent? So tonight I'd like to extend what we dealt with last week. Uh, an even more dicey question, here's your first blanks, an even more dicey question. If God has all power and if God is perfectly loving, so think about those two parameters about God. If God has all power and if God is perfectly loving, then why does he allow the innocent to suffer? Notice one of the things that makes it so sticky is that God is, in fact, all-powerful. His ability to remove suffering from his children is firmly established in Scripture. Let's look at an amazing passage uh, of prophecy that's clearly shown. It's the uh, next to the last chapter of the Bible. 
It, here it is, Revelation chapter 21. It's in your, in your outline, so you don't need to turn there. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. Many of you would be familiar with this passage. And for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away all of this horrible, terrible suffering, this world. And there is no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice in the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he, is, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And these beautiful words, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The pain, the suffering, and now the eternal things have come. The joy, the painlessness, the perfect expression of being in communion with God and Christ. Um, so Christ's incredible victory over the enemy will make it possible for him to create a new heaven and a new earth. You know, this one is, is um, reserved, as 2 Peter 3 says, reserved for fire. It's going to melt with a fervent heat. And then the creation of a, a brand new heaven and new earth. And because of this, for those who follow God, there's a day coming when all suffering will be gone, and it will be gone forever. But this leads to some obvious follow-up questions. And these are important enough. I've got blanks for you to fill in. Here is first, the first one. If the resurrection forever establishes that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, which it does, of course, if the resurrection forever establishes that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, then why do the forces of darkness have so much freedom, so much freedom to wreak havoc in the world now? Tough question. And the second one, if the enemy, here's your blanks, if the enemy has been defeated, then why do those who put their faith in Christ still experience hardship? Uh, before we dive in, first let's make sure that we don't let ourselves off the, the hook too easily. Our, our focus this evening is on why God allows the innocent, remember, the innocent to suffer. There's an important aspect of this conversation that we have to acknowledge and here it is. We can be pretty good at playing the innocent victim when many times we aren't actually that innocent. So notice this theoretical concern about the innocent suffering. We like to think of ours as those, we're the good guy. Uh, 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 and so we, we like to think of it that way. But the reality is, is we often let ourselves off the hook uh, way too easily. Because if we're really honest... We have to confess that many of the trials that we face are consequences of our own lack of wisdom or laziness or selfishness or stubbornness or immaturity or even outright sin. And in these times, in this world, in this fallen world, the hardship may actually be God's loving discipline helping us to learn from our bad choices. Remember, one of the attributes of God who resolves the problem of pain from last week is he would create a cause and effect world. If you could sin and separate yourself from God with no consequences, none of us would ever come to God. And so there are consequences, and he's teaching us, disciplining us, and whom he loves, he disciplines. So here's truth be told, if we're really honest with ourselves, this is your next blanks, most of us are at least partially responsible for many of the problems we face. Yes, there may have been extenuating circumstances, but the reason why you flunk a class most of the time 
it's because you didn't put in the work. It's, it's decisions on your side, on my side. So think about that again. Most of us are at least partially responsible for many of the problems that we face. But I'm going to set this caveat aside and try to deal with the issue of why God allows us to experience tribulation, even when we haven't done anything wrong related to this, this situation we're in. What about the times when people are, in fact, true victims? We know there are many, if not me, many around, around us who are actually being victimized or marginalized. Those, those kinds of things are, are real. So to help deal with these questions, I'd like us to look at the life of Job. You can be turning to Job if you'd like to. Job is, find the Psalms in the middle, and Job is the book right to the left of the Psalm, so it's easy to find. Um, and um, when you look at the details, you, you may well have heard the story, but when you look at the details, there are two enormous surprises that emerge from the book of Job. Incredible surprises. And as we identify those big surprises, it'll help us to deal with the question of why God allows difficulty to come into the lives of innocent people. So, surprise number one, here's your blank. God's response to hardship in his life. Excuse me, Job's. Job's response to hardship in his life. Surprise number one. His surprise is remarkable. So start with the first verse of the book of Job, Job 1.1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. What a remarkable first verse of any book in the Bible. Very few individuals ever have this kind of thing said. The Bible's really good exposing everybody's issues. This is like Daniel. This is like Noah. This is really an amazing person. So look with me at verse 7. Um, and the Lord said to Satan... From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So here's fact number one. We're going to unpack the facts of the details to see what an incredible surprise this is. Fact number one, Job was truly innocent. The text actually uses the Hebrew word for blameless, upright. So this, is, this guy is the real deal. He really is innocent. Now look with me at verse 9, next verse. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? And now he's going to give the explanation for why he thinks Job uh, uh, does things uh, God's way. Verse 10, you have made a hedge around him and his house, and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So fact number two, here's your blanks. God had greatly blessed and protected Job. Now look at verse 10 again. Verse 10 again. You have, you have, not, um, uh, have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have... Bless the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Very interesting. Fact number three, write it in. Satan predicted that Job would reject God if the blessings were removed. 
It's the only way Satan can think. Clearly, the only reason he's obeying is because he gets good stuff from God. No wonder he does what God wants him to. Now look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that is in your... Oh, excuse me. Behold, all he, that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Here's fact number four. Here's your blank. Satan couldn't do anything to Job unless God allowed it. Isn't that interesting? Satan's interacting with God. He's complaining that, of course, Job takes care of it because, God, you put hedges around everything and you give him all this stuff and you don't let me touch him. But if you take that away, he's going to curse you to your face. So think about that. Satan couldn't do anything to Job unless God allowed it. And amazingly enough, this is a consistent biblical concept. This is important to realize. It's an error to think that Satan is in an endless celestial tug of war with God. He's not. <coughs> the devil is a created being just like us. And even though he has way more power than we do, he's still always constrained. Listen, church. He's still always constrained to act within the authority that God grants him. He can only do what God allows him to do. That's an expression of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Not even the second most powerful being in the universe can do anything outside of God allowing it to occur, which of course piles on our, our problem, doesn't it? Our philosophical problem with why God allows the innocent to suffer. So look with me at verse 11 again. Verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Notice the Lord giving him authority to actually be able to deal with what he has. Only do not put forth your hand on him. In other words, don't touch him directly, physically. But what he has, you can touch. So fact number five, here it is. God intentionally allowed Satan to bring calamity into Job's life. Isn't that amazing? God intentionally allowed Satan to bring calamity into Job's life. Now, I don't use the word calamity here lightly at all. As we'll see, what Job experienced was nothing short of disaster. And so now let's look at the series of great calamities that immediately unfold now that Satan has authority and has power to do destructive things in his life. Look at verse 13, the next paragraph. Now, it happened on that day that his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They drew the servants with the, uh, excuse me, they slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, look at this pile on. While he was still speaking, another one also came and said, the fire of the Lord fell from heaven. That's obviously misinterpretation, but that's what they thought happened. The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, look at this, calamity after calamity. While he was still speaking, verse 17, another one came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands. That's a er very, very early name for Babylonians, which is why this is dated as Job being by far and away the, uh, one of the most ancient uh, uh, of, the, of the books uh, in the Old Testament and personalities. 
Uh, the Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid of camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, as we begin to unpack this mysterious story, I want us to notice something. As soon as Satan was given the opportunity, he began to ruin everything in Job's life. It was just boom, 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 and everything was, was gone. Everything good was just boom, gone. And this gives us a really striking key concept. Here's your blank, write it in. If God weren't continually restraining the enemy, if God weren't continually restraining the enemy, we would never experience anything good. And all of human existence would be nothing but suffering. Look at that. Let that soak in. This concept is something that I should acknowledge uh, and think about far more often than I do. There are so many wonderful things in my life. How about yours? My family, my friends, my church, my job. I have food to eat. And the only reason I have any of these things is because God restrains the enemy from ruining everything. Everything good that I'll ever experience comes directly from God's grace. And yet, I can all too easily complain about life. Why don't I have this? And why don't I have that? And why did this happen? And why did that happen? Not realizing that if the Lord took his hedge of protection from around both believers and non-believers because he sends rain on the unjust as well. If God took that hedge away, Satan would ruin everything instantaneously, immediately. So it's all of God, the good things that all of us experience, whether we follow him or not. So from this passage that we just read, look at the calamities that Satan brought into Job's life. Calamity number one, here's your blank. Satan engineers the destruction of all his possessions, engineers the destruction of all his possessions, all of his servants, and all of his children. Now watch this. Look at verse 20, the next verse, the, next, the last paragraph. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Look at this. There's something here that I don't want us to miss. Look at how Job interpreted what happened to him. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. I want you to notice this. Job's theology was wrong. By the way, everything that, everything that is stated in the Word is what God wants to be there, but not everything that's stated in the Word is true. For instance, Satan used the Word right out of Deuteronomy three times to try to manipulate Jesus into doing something that would have been out of the truth, casting himself off the temple so that he could show his power, 
eating when God was, that appetite, the tempting of the appetite, cutting it short because he could have anything he wanted because he was God. Uh, you know, you, you can think of any number of places where when Solomon says vanity, vanity, everything is vanity, nothing meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. That is not a statement of truth, but it was true that he said that. And it's because he had, at the end of his life, jettisoned God. And then all the things became meaningless. So notice, this is one of those places where you can't assume that just because Job said it, it is true or good theology. And in fact, you're ready? Here's the correct theology of hardship. Write it in. God was the one who gave. Notice, the Lord gave. The Lord did give. But it was the enemy who took away. Notice when God was protecting him from the enemy, he gave, he gave, he blessed, he brought grace to his life. When he allowed the enemy to have authority, though, the enemy took things away. So when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, his theology was actually wrong. And let me show you how important it is for believers to understand this. During my years in emergency medicine, I've often had to inform people of the sudden, unexpected death of a family member. It's a routine, happens all the time at the trauma center. And I've been amazed at the number of people and even the number of pastors who are good, orthodox, Christian, doctrinally solid pastors. But the number, I'm amazed at the number who try to be helpful, but they have Job's bad theology. Often the spiritual counsel that bereaved people get is this. I've heard this quote many times. Well... We don't understand, but this was God's will. That is Job's bad theology. No, it's the enemy's will. In fact, look at, here's good theology that flows from the book of Job. Write it in, here's your blanks. The enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy. God has come that we might have life. Totally different. That is the biblical doctrine of God's hope for spreading grace throughout the world. He allows things, as we'll see, to occur to us. But God is the life giver. The enemy is the killer, the murderer, the liar, the deceiver, the stealer, the destroyer. So God's the protector. Satan's the killer. God's the life giver. So Job had bad theology, but this is interesting. Despite his bad theology, after all, think about it. He didn't have a Bible. He was way before Moses. He was probably way before Abraham. He, he had barely a, a clue, right? No wonder he had some bad theology. But notice, he still remained absolutely faithful, even though he did not have good theology. Listen to his amazing testimony one more time. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And now comes calamity number two. Look at me at chapter two, the next verse, the beginning of chapter two of Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on all the earth, blameless and upright. Notice even after the testing, still God uses those words, blameless and upright. Uh, a man fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes. So he's going to now say, ah, that, you know, taking away his stuff isn't enough, God. 
Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Because remember, he hasn't been able to touch Job yet. However, put forth his hand, uh, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Notice again that precept that that no one, even Satan, has the authority to do anything that God doesn't allow. God in his power always has overarching authority in every single setting. So, verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with boil, sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Boy, he looked pathetic, didn't he? I mean, then talk about... Uh, imagine just looking on him. Who, no one would even want to touch him. So here's calamity number two. Ready? Satan destroys his health. And if that isn't enough, look what happens next. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Calamity number three. Write it in. Even his wife abandons the faith. So look at Job's situation. His possessions are gone, his servants are gone, his children is gone, his health is gone, and now even his own wife is telling him to reject God, to to walk away from his faith. And yet, look at this incredibly surprising response. Verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity in all this? Job did not sin with his lips. And in fact, you don't have to turn there, but you can look if you want in chapter 13, verse 15. He says these words. I've got it in here, so you'll have it. Here's the text. The words that echo through the ages. Write it in. Ready? Though he, meaning God, though he slay me, even if God slays me, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And you know there in the Hebrew, hope and trust are a synonym. So you can even find good translations that say, yet will I trust in him, yet will I have faith in him, even if he kills me. So surprise number one was Job's response to the hardship in his life. What an amazing response. Um, But personally, I'm even more amazed by surprise number two. You ready? Surprise number two. Here it is. Write it in. Here's your blanks. God's purpose for allowing the hardship in Job's life. This is such a surprise. God's purpose for allowing the hardship in Job's life is a big surprise. Now, so far, the story of Job makes it very confusing that God allowed such pain in his life. Here's this blameless man who deserves God's protection, and yet God intentionally removes the hedge from around him and allows catastrophic events to wipe out everything that matters to him. So we're still left with the question, This doesn't make it easy, this question that we're working on tonight, it doesn't make it easier, does it? If anything, it makes it worse because God could have said, Satan, you can't touch him. God allowed this. So why did God allow Satan to cause so much pain in Job's life when he could have prevented it? Well, the biblical answer is a big surprise. It's it's a key concept. Here's your blank, write it in. The reason why God allowed hardship into Job's life was because he had such high regard for Job. Say what? The reason why God allowed hardship into Job's life was because he had such high regard for Job? Now stick with me here. 
Very few of us ever grasp this incredible uh, reality of God's amazing aspirations for his children and how high God's opinion is of us. It's a remarkable thing. Let me illustrate it this way. We all know people who dote on their children. All of us do. uh, They go around telling anybody who will listen that their kid's the smartest, they're the best looking, they're the top athletes, and most of us just politely listen to all this hooey, and we let the the hallucinating parents blather on about their superhero children. Just polite, hoping the conversation will end, and then leave. But are you ready for this? God is the most outrageously doting father ever. Let me show you the proudest father of all time. Look again at chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, can you believe that? And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered and said uh, to the Lord and said, from roaming around the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Notice two things in this passage. First, it was the Lord who started the conversation with Satan, not the other way around. Think of that. It wasn't Satan who came to God and said, hey, I want to go mess up Job's life. No, it was the Lord who started the conversation. And second, it looks like God was just waiting for a chance to show off his incredible son. It's as if God had to hold back from announcing how well Job did on his SAT tests and how many goals he scored in the soccer game. You can almost hear God getting ready to tell Satan that Job is going to discover the the cure for cancer when he grows up. Here's the incredible irony. This is in your notes. Here's the blanks. The incredible irony. God allowing suffering in Job's life was his supreme compliment. Oh my. God allowing suffering in Job's life was his supreme compliment and his bold-faced announcement of Job's greatness. And because of God's high aspirations for Job, he gave him a task that was so enormous that any onlooker would just shake their head in disbelief. Listen, God actually gave Job the incredibly high calling of taking on, you ready? Taking on Lucifer. Lucifer, the highest archangel, now fallen. God had so much confidence in Job that he knew he could allow the removal of Job's blessings, Job's security, and Job's possession, and even his family. And after all that, God knew that Job would stare down the enemy of his soul. Think of that incredible confidence God had in him. Now be careful not to misinterpret this. No human, there... Job was not divine. Neither were Noah and neither were Daniel, the three, the, the kind of the triumvirate, triumvirate of, of holiness in the, in the Old Testament, the great holy ones announced by the Bible. None of them were divine. Job wasn't divine. No human, no matter how committed, can take the enemy on in a fight. Not even close. He's way too strong for us. If we try to overpower him, he will always win. When we take the enemy on by strength, We fail every time. And now I like how C.S. Lewis says, his powers are like the powers of a lion compared to that of a salamander. We lose every time when we take him on 
in our strength. And now with this background, we're ready to see the core issue in surprise number two. You ready? What was God's purpose for allowing hardship? Here's your blanks. When God allowed hardship into Job's life, he gave him the opportunity to defeat Satan. And this is amazing. Let me, let me run this again. When God allowed hardship into Job's life, he gave him the opportunity to defeat Satan, not by being powerful, but by simply being faithful. What a message from Job. And perhaps one of the biggest surprises in all of Scripture is the fact that God has the same high calling for every one of his children. That's right. His plan is for every one of us in his great plan to take on the forces of darkness. He's a doting father. He thinks we're great. He made us for greatness. He made us for purposes that are so far beyond where we almost all of us are living. And this leads to our application. Here's your blanks. Because of God's incredible purpose for us, he, allows, he often allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent with his power. Let me say that again to make sure we let that soak in. Because of God's incredible purpose for us, he often allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent with his power. So as we begin our application, I want us to pause. There's no question that God could get us out of every tough situation. He could prevent every difficulty. He could soothe every pain. He could keep hardship from ever entering our life. He has the power to prevent every trial, every challenge, every tribulation, every difficulty we'll ever face. He has the power. He could do it. But in his wisdom, think about it. He has the power to do that. But in his wisdom, he has a bigger plan. He has a higher calling for us. So look at God's lofty goal. Write it in. God, our God, isn't content with us just being weaklings. Our God isn't content to let us just be weaklings. God is looking for people who will take back the territory that the enemy has stolen. But to do that, he needs warriors who won't cower at the first sign of danger and who won't sit around complaining when the war zone gets painful. Many of us seem to have forgotten forgotten there's a war going on around here of course there's pain of course there's suffering there's war going on in the heavenlies the greatest war that has ever occurred and we can't even see most of what's going on with it so listen life in this world isn't a game it's a battle for the souls of humanity and the stakes are way too high for us to waste our lives being insignificant god has no intention of letting us just hang out waiting to get to heaven someday. Unfortunately, doesn't that sound a lot like a lot of the American gospel? But God has no intention of letting us just hang out, waiting to get to heaven someday. He'll never settle for us staying weak, spineless babes in Christ. But many of us love being babies, sitting around getting fat and crying about anything that doesn't go our way. We want to be coddled. We, we want our mama. That's how so many of us are in the church. So we need to stop and think here. If God wanted to, he could destroy Satan at any time. He could take out our enemy anytime he wanted to. With a simple word, 
God could annihilate the devil without lifting a finger. But if he destroyed the enemy solely on the basis of his power, listen, this is important Christian, historical Christian philosophy. If God destroyed the enemy solely on the basis of his power, then he'd be playing right into Satan's hands. Because he'd be able to say, Satan would be able to cry foul. And the devil would point that out that God had finally resorted to being nothing other than a big capital B bully. Capital B. In fact, he would be the biggest bully because he has unlimited power. And in fact, God would be doing exactly what he condemned Satan for. Taking his power and using it for his own purposes. And now we see one of the greatest of all mysteries. When Lucifer led the rebellion against God in the dateless past, God's nature prevented him from destroying the powers of darkness merely by the use of his own unlimited power. And now this begins, again, we don't have, I don't have time tonight to unpack this, but this leads to some of the most deep, historical, philosophical Christian thought. Let this sink in. This dilemma, this dilemma is the very reason why God created the human race. Because God, if he just used his power and because he was stronger, he destroyed everything he didn't like, he would be the ultimate, you ready? He would be the ultimate Satan. If he only used the mere reality that he's more powerful than everybody else, he would literally become that which is what Satan became, uh, became using his power on those who are weaker than him. This is why God created the human race. Don't miss this. God's plan to subdue the forces of evil is to use regular old people like you and me, despite all of our weaknesses, to, you ready? To use us to defeat the enemy. Now think about what a crazy plan this is. I'm sorry, that's probably an irreverent way to say it, but this is not a good plan, Lord. We are totally helpless to do any damage to the forces of evil. They're enormously, not infinitely, only God is infinitely more powerful than us, but, but the lion versus the salamander is a good picture from C.S. Lewis, and that's the incredible genius of God's plan. He overcomes, ready? He overcomes strength with weakness. He destroys hatred with compassion. He puts demonic armies to flight with pathetic weaklings like us. Now, as uh, remarkable as this truth is, let's make sure that we're not missing something here. This can only happen through the power of Christ in us. But what's amazing is when we're at our lowest, when we feel most abandoned, is the point at which we're most able to deal a blow to the enemy. This is a great paradox. And now we're ready to see God's amazing plan in Job's story. Job had hit absolute bottom, couldn't go any lower. Satan had taken away everything. And on top of all of this, it looked like God had completely abandoned him. Everything in Job's life made it look like the enemy had won. And yet, despite all of this, he still held fast to his faith, his hope, his trust in God. Do you realize, stop for a second, while we're sitting here thinking, oh, I cannot believe how horrible this is for Job. 
I can't believe how unfair this is for Job. While we're sitting there doing that, do you realize what a devastating blow this was to Satan? And I love this. It's actually funny. It was Satan who got himself into this mess. Job was just minding his own business, being a simple man of faith. And God had a little conversation with Satan. And he completely missed the fact that God was setting him up because of who Job was. Look again at verse 9 in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed his work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Notice, Satan assumed that Job was only faithful because he was blessed. Oh, listen, church. So when Satan asked God to allow him to bring evil upon Job, Satan thought Job would fold. The devil fully expected to be able to laugh in God's face because of Job. But even after the enemy gave Job his best shot, he didn't fold. And now, with what we've learned, we're ready to understand a truly profound passage of Scripture. It comes at the end of Romans. Now remember, Rome. Being a first century Christian in Rome meant that they were hunting you down to feed you to the lions. That's who Paul is writing this letter to. And as we pick up Paul's letter, he's commending them for their faithful obedience, despite all of their hardships, despite their martyrdom for the faith. And what he says to them is so remarkable that I want you to write it in. The result, here's your blanks, the result of the Roman believer's faithfulness, right out of the text, for the report of your obedience has reached to all, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Think about what that verse actually says. How is that possible? We can see God crushing Satan under his feet. We know that. But how can God crush Satan under our feet? We learned it tonight from Job. Job had delivered a crushing blow to the enemy. Look at what they were. What they were. Look at the crushing blows that Job gave to the enemy. Ready? Crushing blow number one. Write it in. There was nothing that Satan could do to get Job to be unfaithful. Think of that. There was nothing that Satan could do to get Job to be unfaithful. And crushing blow number two. The enemy was crushed, ready? The enemy was crushed because not only had God defeated Satan, but Job had defeated him. Just think, in his weakness, in his desperation, at the very worst time in his life, Job refused to be unfaithful. And because of this, Job became terrifying to the forces of darkness at his lowest, in his devastation. Ready? Job had become a dangerous man. And why was he so dangerous to the enemy? Because Job stood firm when all the props were gone. He stood firm when his possessions were gone. 
His family was gone. His stability was gone. His health was gone. His friends were gone. We didn't even read that part. His dreams were gone. Job stood firm, ready, when everything was gone. So here's a most amazing truth for God's children. When God allowed the enemy to bring hardship into Job's life, the innocent man, it looked like he was granting Satan power over Job. But actually, you may even want to write this down. It's not in your your notes, but you may want to write this down, down. Let me say it again. It looked like he was granting Satan power over Job, but actually God was granting Job the opportunity to have power over Satan. God was actually granting Job the opportunity to have power over Satan. Because he was resolved to trust and obey God no matter what, Job discovered the truth of Romans 16, probably thousands of years before Romans 16 was written by Paul. The God of peace had crushed Satan, ready, under Job's feet. My friends, that's when the enemy loses all power over us. So why does God allow bad things to happen to his people? Amazingly, it's because his calling on our lives is so high. It's because that he wants us to, use, to he wants to use us to crush the enemy. His calling in our lives is so high that he actually wants to use us to crush the enemy. But here's our challenge. When we're at our lowest is when it's the hardest to be faithful, isn't it? That's the challenge. It's easy to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when we feel strong and when everything's good. But what about when times are genuinely, really tough? Among those who are watching, there are many suffering people and plenty of us have asked God, why? Maybe you're facing real hardship right now. Perhaps you've lost a job or Maybe someone in your family is causing you great pain, or perhaps bankruptcy seems just around the corner. Maybe your marriage is in trouble, or you're being mistreated by people who you thought were your friends. Or maybe you've got a serious physical diagnosis. Maybe you have a fatal diagnosis, or you're in pain. Perhaps your spiritual life seems dry, and you're in a valley, and God seems so far away. In fact, maybe you even feel like Job. But Job's life presents us with an enormous challenge. His testimony calls us to decide that with God's grace and with God's help, we're not going to fold. With Job, we're going to deal the enemy a mighty blow by simply being faithful to our Lord. But here's the tough part. For God to do this in our lives, we have to be willing to be faithful even when All the props are gone. But here's the great news. If you're at a low point, if things are tough, you're actually in a perfect position to become dangerous to the enemy. If you're willing to simply be faithful, no matter what the cost, then God, the God of peace, will crush Satan under your feet. And tonight, the word of God has called us to put the enemy on notice, to put him on notice that we're going to stand. So this evening, I want you to announce to the enemy, if you mean it, if you're serious about it, 
Announce to the enemy that by God's grace, he will not have victory in your life. And by God's grace, you're not going to fold. And by God's grace, you're going to crush his power in your life. Tonight, tonight, announce to the enemy that by God's grace, you're simply going to be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, do whatever you have to to bring us to the point where you can count on us even if all the props are gone. The things, the stuff, the possession, the good things, even potentially relationships, family, all of those things. Health. Make us the kind of people that don't need security or leisure or comfort or wealth or health for you to count on us. Lord, do whatever you have to to expose what needs to change in our lives. If it takes hardship, Lord, oh, this is a scary prayer. But do what it takes, Lord. If it takes hardship, then give us hardship. If it takes suffering, then give us suffering. If it takes loss of possession, then take away our possessions. But Lord, whatever you do, don't leave us like we are. We confess that we're not yet who you need us to be, Lord. And we recognize that the days are too dark for weak, immature Christians. The days are short. The the stakes are so high. Lord, do whatever you must do to conform us to the image of your Son. Do whatever you must do to make us the kind of people who you can use to crush the enemy. Amen.